You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. In our reading from 2 Samuel, we pick up the story where things left off last week. David has abused his power, sexually exploited Bathsheba, and then tried to cover his tracks by arranging to have her husband Uriah killed in battle. Though earlier identified as a man after God's own heart, David has now been revealed as precisely the sort of king that Samuel had warned of when Israel first called out to have a king appointed. Careful what you ask for, Samuel had warned. You might just get it. For all the promise that David had shown as he gradually ascended to the throne, The reader now knows that he is as liable to fall for the lure of unchallenged power and privilege as any other king. Yet as the story opens, David himself has yet to confront what his abuse of power has wrought in his own soul and his own world. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. You can almost see David knocking the dust and dirt off of his hands, saying, you see, it's all covered up. I have a beautiful new wife who's given me a son, And nobody outside of my inner circle will ever be the wiser. But, the text says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, which, as I suggested last week, is a powerful counterpoint to David's own message to Joab in response to hearing that Uriah had been successfully killed in battle. He said, do not let this matter trouble you. But it troubles and displeases God, who now sends the prophet Nathan to speak to David. Now, Nathan stands in the prophetic covenantal line, which means his calling is to speak truthfully and critically. To use a a, a much more modern term, he's called to speak truth to power. That can be a very dangerous thing indeed. A prophet is not authorized by royal power, nor ordained or consecrated in the manner of priests. No, the prophet's authority is organic, innate, and spirit-inspired. The prophet's role is to speak into the halls of power, be that the palace or as will later be true, in the courts of the grand temple that Solomon will build. Whether in temple or in palace, whenever Israel 
forgets its core identity as a covenant people bound to their God, a God who both loves them and calls them to truthfulness, justice, and righteousness, whenever they forget that identity, a prophet's voice will begin to thunder. Nathan knows that to confront David in his sin is risky. So he tells his parable, a parable of two men, one rich, one poor, one with many flocks, one with only one little ewe lamb. And he says, now there came a traveler to that rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who'd come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb, prepared that for the guest who'd come to him. What? David responds with indignation. What? For such a crime, that man deserves to die. He will now need to repay the poor man with four lambs for doing such a heartless thing. You are the man, Nathan replies. Now fairly certain that his parable has walked David toward an unavoidable conclusion. You are that man. Now press pause for a moment. I want you to note a couple things from this story. Firstly, nowhere in this reading is Bathsheba identified by her own name. She is instead twice called simply the wife of Uriah. Secondly, it would appear that Nathan is drawing a parallel between the poor man's little ewe lamb, his property, and Uriah's wife Bathsheba. So is she being considered here as merely property? Is the prophet suggesting that it is actually Uriah who's been wronged in this whole sordid episode, not Bathsheba? who's merely the property, the same way the lamb was the property of the poor man in the parable. Now, there is no doubt that in these stories we are peering into a heavily patriarchal culture, one in which a woman's rights, status, and identity were tightly bound to those of her husband. Yet it strikes me that there's more going on in the text than is evident at first glance. The narrator's intent in identifying Bathsheba simply as, quote, the wife of Uriah, may in a sense be to haunt the story, all of the stories, with the appalling nature of Uriah's murder. Don't ever forget, David, that to cover your own iniquity, you arrange the death of an innocent man. The remainder of your reign, your marriage, even your legacy will always have a shadow cast across it by the memory of Uriah. In fact, even in the long genealogy with which the gospel according to Matthew begins, it reads, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Even in the gospels, David's crime is not forgotten. David's life is haunted by the specter of that man he arranged to have killed. But what about drawing a parallel between Bathsheba and the poor man's lamb? 
Well, look again at what is said about the lamb in Nathan's little parable. It says, The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Anybody who's ever spent any time around sheep and sheep farmers know that this is an absolutely bizarre picture. The ewe lamb grew up with him and with his children, sharing their food, drinking from his cup, snuggling up with him. This is not anything anyone would ever expect of a sheep owner. The man has essentially adopted this lamb as one of his own children, treating her with kindness and tenderness. She is not owned simply for the utility of her wool and her milk, but is rather said to be like a daughter. Now is Nathan actually suggesting something about the nature of Uriah and Bathsheba's marriage, about an unexpected tenderness, kindness, and warmth, about the depths of the violation of that marriage rendered by David in his exploitation of her and murder of him. And is Nathan saying something about the paucity of David's own understanding of marriage and intimacy? I believe so. As why else would he have characterized the man's love for the ewe lamb in such unexpected terms? Unpress the pause button. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Having declared his hand in telling the parable, the prophet winds up and goes hard at his king, delivering a judgment of almost unimaginable force. God has been faithful to you, David, but you've shown yourself faithless to the covenant. Your decision to see the sword used to murder Uriah will come back upon your own household, which will now always live under the sword. What you thought you were doing in secret has been revealed, and all will come to see violence and exploitation in your own home, in your own life. It has been unveiled. There's fire in the prophet's eyes. As he brings his judgment to an end, it will be David who speaks. Here I cite Walter Brueggemann regarding David's reply. Brueggemann says, David's response in verse 13 is remarkable. I have sinned. We might conclude David had no option. He was caught red-handed and had to confess. But in fact, he did not have to confess. A lesser man, perhaps his son Solomon, would not have confessed, but would have eliminated the prophet instead. The elimination of Nathan could have been done easily, but David did not move against Nathan. David's confession comes very late, but at least David has submitted. In the eleventh hour, David acknowledges himself to be a child of the Torah.
the prophet has called him back to his foundational identity as a covenant-bound person. David has heard that call and he has repented. He has turned around in remorse. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin and forgiven you, David. You've owned your deed. You are forgiven. But it isn't all sunshine and roses. You are indeed forgiven, but the consequences of this act and of the way you have run your household all along, the way you have failed to do real justice to your family life, they remain. The consequences remain. So much of that will have very little to do with punishment per se, but more to do with the raw consequences that fall out from the sort of husband and father and king David has been. And of course, David's family will indeed be haunted by division, abuse, and even the sword. Some of those stories will be told in the coming weeks. Now, we've been spending a good bit of time with this David character over these summer months. Maybe you're beginning to wonder why. I mean, sure, these are biblical stories. It's probably good to get familiar with them, but week after week after week. But that's actually the point. Ancient Israel's faith and imagination was shaped by the stories it told. The tradition reveres David, positively delighting in the story of how the shepherd boy becomes the shepherd king. It's one of the many instances in which the unlikely one, the little one, the hesitant one, the seemingly weak one, is called upon as a vessel of God's work. Almost a last-shall-be-first dynamic embedded deeply in Israel's identity. But these ancient scribes, writers, insisted on following the stories right through their darkest chapters. Because in showing a character like David in his entirety, something critical about human nature is revealed. We are invited as the listening, storytelling community to ponder the extremes of what humans can be and then to confess our own stumbling fragility in response. I would love to be able to say that with his confession, I've sinned against the Lord, David completely reclaims his identity as a child of the Torah and then lived an untroubled, uncomplicated life as a fully restored, good, gracious king. But there's a quality of lostness to David by this point. And as much as he remembers that he is meant to be a covenant king, he will never entirely untangle himself and his family from the legacy of the mess that he has made. His son Solomon will always be the child he fathered by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And yet, still is he forgiven, and still is he beloved of God. David's path will not be easy. He will live with the consequences of his choices. 
Yet still does he stumble along in the light of a gracious forgiveness. As do we. People with a faith and imaginations formed by the stories we tell. For all of our failings and our foibles, we are forgiven and reconciled again and again and again, limping our way to the promised new Jerusalem, limping our way to the one who proclaimed, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And if we know that bread and know our own Achilles heels and weakness and vulnerabilities, when we tell these stories, we have all the more reason to turn to the bread of life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.